This is Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. Odds are, you know someone who's had to apply for unemployment benefits in this crisis already. We're seeing claims at unprecedented numbers, really unseen unemployment since the days of the Great Depression. So what do you do if you go to your local claim website and the site was designed to handle 10,000 claims over the past three years? And now it's doing 10,000 claims a day. Most government technology is not set up in an adaptable way. It's not ready to handle the load of the crisis. And keep in mind, these are still the early days of the crisis. We don't know how bad this is going to get. But what we do know is that we have to get coordinated. We need leaders in the public and private sectors to work together. We can't wait for some mythical savior to arrive. We have to act build with what we have and what we know right now. For many years, I've had the privilege of working with Jen Palka through Code for America, through her time in the Obama administration, through our work together on things like the United States Digital Service and 18F. She has been an advocate for a more responsive, a more resilient, more agile government. And if that sounds like an oxymoron, well, listen up. So it's no surprise that she was one of the first people I called when this crisis hit to ask what she was doing to make a difference. And of course, I came away inspired by her answer. She and Raylene Young, who you'll hear in a minute, have collaborated to form the USDR, the United States Digital Response, activating an entire network of government technologists, lean and agile practitioners, to bring them together with state and local governments, solving problems of immediate need. They have placed dozens or probably hundreds by now volunteers uh, in partnership with government agencies, and many of those teams have shipped a year's worth of work in a weekend. Raylene has worked at a number of top technology firms, like Stripe and Facebook, and she and Jen have that civic spirit, that ethos of rolling up your sleeves when it's most needed. Together, they are leading a cross-functional organization that is helping governments understand how to respond to this crisis. USDR is literally plugging the gaps, finding the places where our governments are not yet able to respond. Their work and the work of the hundreds of volunteers has been a source of great inspiration, even in these dark days. Here's my conversation with Raylene and Jen. So Raylene, Jen, thanks so much for taking time to talk. Uh, Do you mind just each introducing yourself? I'm Jen Palka, and up until January 31st, I was running the nonprofit that I founded called Code for America for 10 years and um, had planned for quite some time to step down. I just didn't realize I was stepping down so I could step up into something else. Um, uh, I have experience working with government through Code for America and also spent a year at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as the deputy U.S. CTO. I'm Raylene Young, and I spent my career mostly working at tech companies, primarily leading product and engineering teams at Facebook and Stripe. More recently, I was a fellow at the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub for working on USDR. This is a pretty uh, sober and deadly situation. How are you both doing? And can you tell us a little bit about your your personal quarantine setup? Um, I have a very blessed quarantine setup. I feel very lucky. I live in Oakland with my husband and now my dog, and I have been with my daughter, but she decided that uh, Sebastopol was a better place to be during all this and is off with her 
her stepsister and her family up in Sebastopol. But I have a, I guess the privilege really to be working quite a few hours a day, (laughs) feeling busy and uh, useful, which really reduces the stress. And I have a a home office that my husband helped me set up in advance of my stepping down from Code for America. I was going to write a, be writing a book in this office. Uh, I'm not writing the book, but I am happy with what I'm doing in here. And I am very lucky that it has two huge windows and views of the uh, East Bay Hills. And I just couldn't feel more yeah, blessed to be writing out this crisis with both important and meaningful work and a, and a very comfortable setting. And I, I wish that I wish that for everybody. I live in San Francisco. I'm in the Mission District. Kind of similar. I think very lucky to have you know a, a comfortable home that that I can live in. And I uh, one of the first things we did was and my partner has a, a startup, and we went to his office and borrowed um, a bunch of office equipment and set up some real home offices. So been lucky to have that. I would say for the quarantine, I think it's made me really appreciate how much we can communicate with people digitally. So my parents and my brother live in Southern California. My brother's actually a surgeon. Um, so, you know, every day we're checking in just to see how things are going at the hospital. Um, and it's also been an opportunity to just reconnect with a lot of friends over Zoom calls or FaceTime kind of regularly. Do you have a favorite uh, pandemic quarantine tip? One fun one I've had is, I don't know, for for people who maybe work a lot on like, you know, on Zoom and calls, I actually think calling people is very tiring when you're like staring at each other. And it's kind of this awkward, like you say something, then they say something. So my new pro tip is I just put like, get some friends, like turn on a call. And we just kind of wander around the kitchen and like cook dinner and like eat. (laughs) And it's just more, it's more just kind of like you're like live streaming their lives. I think that's just been very relaxing and feels a lot more like you're hanging out with someone in real life. That's great. I think mine would just be use the time to do what, what Raylan said, which is call the people you haven't called and check on the people that you neglect <laughs> when when life is busier. You know, as much as we are in a dire and really scary situation, don't be ashamed of the upsides of it and take advantage of them. Yeah, I, I have to say I, I really envy the people who are bored yeah. and looking for recommendations of uh, what Netflix shows to watch. <laughs> but, you know, like we... It's a crisis where some of us are called to do that and anything that's not uh, violating the social distancing rules and anything that's not falling into despair, uh, I think we got to be proud of being able to do. Mm-hmm. Where were you when you first had the realization that this pandemic was going to be not business as usual, but something really extraordinary? I was in a funny boat. I, as I mentioned, was finishing this fellowship program and I've probably spent the last somewhere between three and six months going very, very deep on climate change and trying to understand um, the role of technology in it, the impact it's ha- already having on the world. I was actually specifically looking at the climate impact of cloud computing and a bunch of things that I think the tech sector is involved in. And I remember I was sitting at home trying to write up this guide on how to understand carbon footprint and what we can do to reduce it. And I, ha- I was kind of staring at this write-up of it on my computer and watching um, one of the daily uh, press briefings um, from the White House on the crisis. And I just, it kind of hit me. I was like, this doesn't matter right now. You know, like it does. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say climate change doesn't matter. It's incredibly important. But it just hit me that like, if there was anything that was going to top the priority list for what 
people are dealing with at this moment, coronavirus has really taken that top spot and it just became hard to concentrate on my other project. So that was probably the moment that it hit me when something became more important than climate change, at least for me to focus on uh, right now. How about you, Jen? For me, I went on a trip. Code for America Summit uh, got canceled. It was supposed to be a couple of days. It was like March 11th through 13th. So you can you can remember that it was starting to get serious then, but we weren't told not to travel yet. And I, ha- I'm, I have to admit with a, a great deal of shame that my daughter begged me not to go on the trip. And it was my mother's birthday. And I was seeing her before I was supposed to go down to DC for the Code for America Summit. I, my mom really wanted me to come. And uh, I went. And as we were on the trip, I realized I shouldn't be traveling and that my daughter, as usual, was right. She, by the way, was busy on social media. She's 16, trying to get all of uh, you know her peers to take this seriously. I, I looked at her uh, Instagram the other day, and she had put uh, the blog post that was entitled, This Is Not a Snow Day, in her Instagram profile. And she was begging friends that were out in groups not taking this seriously to to change their behavior, not to much avail, I'm sorry to say, though I think many of her friends were already taking it seriously. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm ashamed to say that I, I kind of realized a mistake on a trip and then tried to get home sort of as quickly as I can. But, you know, it really hit me when DJ Patil, who was the first U.S. chief data officer, called me and told me a little bit about what his modeling was showing. That Then I, I realized that this was not just about me having been on a trip, but this is a really big problem. So let's talk about what uh, U.S. Digital Response was formed to do, and uh, maybe you can kind of tell the founding story of it and some of the extraordinary people that have stepped up to be part of it and what they're doing. It starts from that moment when DJ called me. I was in my kitchen trying to cook dinner, and he said, what are you doing? What are you doing about this? Um, He had some stuff that he and some colleagues were going to do to help government. And it's that sort of that moment when, when someone calls you to service, even if it's in a, an informal, uh, helpful way. He was talking about what he thought needed to happen in California and the fact that every state was going to need the kind of expertise that California was able to muster and probably wouldn't have access to that. And while I was talking to him and cooking dinner, uh, Megan Smith called, who was another former U.S. CTO, and Rizzoli was asking me sort of the same thing. What's going on? What are you doing? How are, how are you going to contribute to this national crisis? And initially, it was a little bit unformed. It was the states are going to need to be able to be connected to each other. They're going to need to be able to spread, spread best practices, and they're, gonna, they're just going to need technology and data help. When I got off the phone with the two of them, I called Corey Zarek, who I have been working with in various capacities over the year, uh, over the, the many years that have been in this space. Uh, she is sitting now at Georgetown's Beck Center, uh, running a digital services collaborative there, and knew that she would have you know the right network and the right orientation for this. And she said, "Yeah, yeah, we got to do something. Let's 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 start." And we just started by getting a, a list together of people that we knew in states that we thought might be able to share ideas about what they were going to do. Can we start 
spreading what's working from state to state. We have a network of people that we've worked with over the years that we could we could start to to tap. And I think it was later on that night when she said Ryan already has a form up, and I said what form? <laughs> and of course, Ryan, our friend Ryan Panchasadram, having worked on the healthcare.gov rescue, knew that what you need in a case like this is many, many, many extra hands with a certain skill set and also with a certain orientation. And that orientation is, I will do what it takes. I am here to help. This isn't about me right now. This is about us. Um, and he had put up a, a like simple Google form saying, who, who wants to raise your hand and help right now? And it was already getting people. So you know, by that, by late that night, we had merged the efforts of our, you know, our three thinking and had started to, to get together, you know, a list of people in government and a list of people outside of government and started planning how to merge them. I think the way I've been describing kind of what we're doing and the, the journey we've been on, it's, it's like, it's really for the startup folks, it's like starting up something like a company, a startup, and just having it go from like, it's like someone was joking that we're going through each of the st stages each week. So, you know, the first week it's like small seed fund startup with like three or four friends. And then the next week you have like 10 people, it's a series A and then series B. And it's just kind of the, the rate of growth is really has been kind of staggering. So we started off with these two forms. We had a Google form where people signed up to volunteer and we had a, like a mailing list of people that Jen and Corey and Ryan and others knew in state and local government. And the question is like, what do we do here with, with these two sides? So we've really designed it like in a bit like a startup where we have on one side, there's like a re recruiting team <laughs> where we have volunteers who apply, we talk to them, we figure out what they're good at, where they can get plugged in. And then we have this like government partnerships team where we're actually talking to real users, who in this case are government groups who are coming to us with requests for help and, th and sharing things that they're seeing. For folks who aren't familiar, I think this you know, we've worked together many years and, yeah. and have seen this kind of government private technology uh, partnership in action. But I think for some listeners, that may, that may be a new idea. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about the kinds of requests that are coming from governments and maybe answer the question of why is this not something governments can handle themselves? Sure. So everything's been moving very quickly. And so the way I'll describe it is we've seen a few waves of the types of things that people are requesting. And each wave, I think, is roughly correlated to where people are locally in terms of the crisis. So I would say one of the first things that we heard very commonly was um, what I've been calling kind of insights and information. So this is different states or cities or counties who have um, who are trying to just get information out to their residents. So they want to know, is there a good tool online that helps someone self-assess whether they have COVID-19? So like a symptom checker. They might want to know, is there a basic tool that helps them keep an eye on the number of cases and, they, and the rate of case growth and modeling and prediction tools? So that was the first wave of needs. And I think everyone is kind of wrapping their, their heads around what is happening locally and how do we communicate what's happening to our residents. I would say the second wave was really more around healthcare and medical resources in a way. So this is where the PPE coalition comes in. This is kind of tracking hospital inventories, like number of beds, location and number of ventilators and so forth. And that's kind of been the second wave of needs. And a lot of it is, is sort of similar. Some of it's communication, but a lot of it is also just getting the data, aggregating it, being able to take action on it. I would say kind of the, the third wave that we are certainly in now is uh, more around benefits. So now with CARES and pandemic unemployment assistance and a lot of programs that are coming out, but in addition to just in general, the, d the increased demand on benefits, we're just seeing a lot of systems get overloaded with 
record numbers of applications, you know, just gives you a sense of it is we had, um, that we're working with a team in New Jersey and they said that, you know, their old system got 3000 applications over the last roughly 15 years. Um, after all these changes and all the new, the new, the new things that are happening right now, they got 30,000 applications in the first day. And if you just think about that, as you can imagine, none of the systems that we're processing 3,000 over 15 years are really set up to process 30,000 in like hours or days, right? So right now we're kind of in this wave of benefits and just trying to figure out how we can make it easier for people to get benefits and, you know, and also help the government teams like fulfill those benefits. I, I would say another wave that, you know, is, is coming up as well and, and, and I think is, is very important is I do think um, some areas are also starting to think about how do we, what's the recovery look like and how do people emerge from shelter in place? And that's where I think things like contact tracing or self-reporting of symptoms it is starting to, and efforts like masks for all, I think these are the things that are now also starting to come up. Yeah, I can give you an example of like one of the real early things that happened where you could just sort of see the, the pattern. There's a guy in New Jersey government named Ross Dakin. I happen to know him because he was a presidential innovation fellow several years ago. He sends over a little thing. It's like, I just, you know, I just need this data scraped out of this, out of this, this data set, sort of simple, simple little project. This was before we had process, which we really appreciate now. And I just forwarded it to a former Code for America fellow who I had seen put his his record in our database for wanting to help out. And you know, I'm looking at this thread now, and he just returned it to him with all of the work done and the data all where it needed to be the next day around the same time. So sort of 24-hour turnaround. Uh, you asked a little bit about you know why is this different and why government can't do this. And government normally, if it needs something technical done, it doesn't have a lot of people who can do stuff like this. Mostly government outsources everything. And to outsource something, you need to write up a thing and bid it out. And there's no time for a procurement at a moment like this, certainly not for a small project, but there are a lot of bigger projects. So for Nick to be able to return this work to him you know, in 24 hours is a pretty big deal and it builds a lot of trust. And so from there, Ross started throwing us bigger and bigger projects. And the next thing he asked Nick to do, by the way, I like this. He says, Nick, 20,000 small business owners, a dozen overworked NJ, NJEDA officers, and I so appreciate you're raising your hand, right? Like these, this is New Jersey Economic Development Association. Mm -hmm. But the next thing he asked him to do was uh, there are all these small businesses that are now eligible for loans. It's really confusing for them. What what are you eligible for? What can you get? What should and not knowing makes it even harder to plan. And yeah, again, within about a day, Nick Doron was able to put up an eligibility wizard, taking all that data into account, all the program information into account. And it was up there at what Ross would call the speed of need. <laughs> we're not, we're no longer operating at the speed of government. We're operating at the speed of need. And it's because people are there to just do it. And now other states can take that eligibility wizard, adapt it if they need to, and put it up even faster. That's something I remember back from the Code for America days, this idea of doing implementations for one, one locality, one government, and then open sourcing it, getting other governments to standardize on it or to, to uh, reuse it. Tell us a little bit about that, how that's going in this effort. Yeah, we've seen a, um, a fair number of things be able to be borrowed. I think it still doesn't, frankly, happen as much as we'd like it to, because it's just very hard to get the word out to everybody. So 
we're trying to use networks of networks, whether it's the Bloomberg What Cities crew or the National League of Cities or um, just met today with Tech for America to just remind people that they need to look around before <laughs> they look down, you know, look around and see what else is there. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, you know, the city of Concord, California reached out with a request of how do we help get volunteer help to get food to senior citizens um, who are homebound. And it was an example where we were like, well, we could build something maybe kind of quickly for you that helps collect volunteers and match and helps you match them. And so we had a team who did that. They really like were staying up all night, like kind of hacking together a tool that, that the city of Concord could use. What we realized is like, part of it is like, we don't necessarily want to own this tool or even be responsible or kind of looking at this um, data to match volunteers that should really live in the city's hands and they should have that data and they should be able to do that. So we kind of took a totally different approach and basically opened up everything and made it more of a recipe um, that we've published on GitHub and we have kind of instructions on how to do this. So it's all set up using like a CMS and um, and a back, a very, very basic configurable like backend. And now what we do is if a city writes in and says, we want to coordinate local volunteers, we help you set up your own version of this service. Um, we actually give you the keys to the data and we kind of walk away from it. And so now it's something that's completely run by the city. And we've seen like cities around the world just organically find us and then build their own versions as well. So I think that's kind of an extreme example of open source. It's not even just the code is there. It's like, we actually help you get it up and running, but we don't even have to see any of the data in the end. And that story is a great example, not of reuse, but that came to us through a LinkedIn message to me from a guy who was friends with the mayor of Concord. And, you know, they didn't, USDR didn't even exist yet. It, it, but it was the kind of thing that signaled to me, if people are that desperate to, to get solutions that they're just going to sort of, you know, asking a friend who might know a friend, we really need to show up and, and be able to answer the question, can you help with a big yes? Isn't that wild in a crisis like this? How many of us have been on the receiving end of messages like that? You know, a friend of the governor, someone who knows someone who knows someone who's in need. Yeah. And you, what you want to say is like, but there's a system for that. And, you know, they shouldn't need to do that. There, It ought to work. The system ought to work. And the reality is that some of the systems work pretty well some of the time, but this is really showing that our systems don't work as well as they should, even in quote unquote normal times. And I, I do hope that some of the lessons that we learn from this is we can't, we can't let our infrastructure get as frayed as it has been. This is really showing us the weaknesses, but also showing us the strengths, right? The fact that we are rising to the occasion and getting it done outside of normal channels, sometimes outside of normal channels is very hopeful, but it, a, a lot of people are going, shouldn't, shouldn't this happen a different way? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you say that because that has been such a theme already in the few conversations that I've had trying to get our arms around how we get out of this mess. This combination of our decrepit infrastructure and the neglect that we have shown to making the necessary long-term investments during the good times, yeah. combined with this incredible resilience and inspiration that comes from ordinary people stepping in to fill the gaps when they shouldn't even really be needed to do that because yeah. the system should have been invested in. So talk a little bit more about what are the lessons you hope people will learn from this crisis and what could we be doing right now to plant the seeds for that recovery so that we don't make these mistakes again? 
Well, I'll start on something I think people don't pay much attention to. You know, it's not just infrastructure in the sense of, you know, better technology systems, which of course I'm, I'm happy to talk about till the cows come home, but it's complexity. We have let our systems become wildly overly complex. And it's not until, you know, the, the, the volume gets so high that you realize that's just, this is just this dumb way to do things. Or actually, let me restate that. It's not that it's not that you don't realize it. It's that people aren't, they're not looking at it because a lot of the complexity that makes government hard to manage uh, mostly affects low-income people and other people who don't have as much of a political voice. For example, there's a lot of barriers to receiving SNAP benefits. That's, you know, in regular parlance, that's food stamps, supplemental nutrition assistance program. And food advocates have been saying for years, why do we put such an enormous administrative and logistical burden on people to give them just a couple hundred dollars a month in assistance to, to actually have healthy food for their families? This is really not fair. Now in the crisis, uh, the Food and Nutrition Service of the USDA, who regulates this at the federal level, has issued guidance that we can skip the interview, which is one of the biggest, biggest barriers for people. And it does beg the question, why did we have the interview in the first place? Uh, I think in a perfect world, an interview could be a great thing that actually helps people and connects them to other benefits, but that's not how this works at, in, in the current state. Uh, there's another story of this just now that I, I can't get into the specifics of, but where you have things that really should be easy and have been incredibly hard and, and people have been saying, no, that can't happen. It's going to take five years of, of regulatory work and technology work hand in hand to get it to happen. And suddenly people are saying, oh, wait, actually, it turns out mm, a middleware layer will probably fix this. We'll have it done in a few weeks. And I'm so glad that's happening. And it's, it, 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 it's going to help a lot of people. But why didn't we do it that way before? And part of the answer, unfortunately, is that not enough people understand the experience of folks that have to interact with government when they are, you know, need assistance. Not enough people in power really know what it's like to get unemployment insurance or to get SNAP or to get Medicaid. And if we did, I think we would fix them. And I hope we, we take this opportunity to really change things. And it's again, it's not just technology. It's rules, simplifying the rules and simplifying and streamlining the processes that make the, you know, that currently make the technology overcomplicated. Yeah, I just had two kind of quick things. I think one, um, one is certainly the idea of kind of Jen's capturing with re regressive bureaucracy. I think right now so much more burden is placed on people or groups that actually need more help, that it, it's, it's kind of backwards, right? They actually ask people who need help to jump through more hoops. And I think that's something that's going to become more clear as we see certain systems get overloaded and we're examining the criteria and the processes we use to get people help. That's certainly one. The other one, I think, speaking more from kind of a, a tech person outside of government that I hope people take away from this, particularly if you're volunteering with USDR, is that the government is not so far away and so inaccessible. I think in, in our teams and our volunteer groups, everyone is working day in and day out side by side with people who work for the government. And we're looking at, you know, the city of San Francisco's website or the city, the state of New Jersey's websites and the resources that are made available. 
And I think they're actually like right there and very accessible. And I hope that this does encourage people to, whether it's to work in government or to just look at what their local cities and states offer to their residents um, and to kind of understand what those things are and maybe even try to contribute in positive ways to your community. I, I hope that's something that, that stays on after all this. That's been a real theme of these conversations about leadership in a time of crisis, that so many of the things that you are called on to do in a crisis, you should have been doing all along. That just reveals to you that you were supposed to be doing it. And I think a lot of us are having trouble falling into recrimination and blame and even feeling guilty or even ashamed of the things that we did pre-crisis, which makes it hard to move forward and make the investments that we need to make now, or even to feel like it's too late. We missed our chance. We missed our window. How are you keeping that motivation to stay forward oriented? I think, I think there's something that um, is kind of definitely in the way that I think our, our team is structured is we're very, in general, very iterative and forward looking. You know, I kind of joke that every day we'll change anything we need to, to help us be more effective and move forward. And I think we see that in our projects and we see that in our approach. So part of that to me is just the general positive outlook, which is the impact we can have tomorrow can probably be bigger than the impact we had today. And, and that's certainly what keeps me going. And I think is something we factor into a lot of the way we're approaching this work. I think we've had not just insufficient investments in infrastructure and all the other things that we've just talked about, but we have a society that is profoundly unequal. And as much as I am terrified about the impact of this health crisis, but economic crisis as well on so many people, I am also hopeful that it forces us to face that this is simply an unsustainable way of running a country and that big change comes out of it. And to me, just being part of, on a day-to-day basis, groups of people who are going to fight for that change and force that change in small ways and big ways. Um, And Eric, there's a lot of things that I see you doing that feel to me like big structural changes that were underway beforehand, um, like your long-term stock exchange. You know, if, if this crisis accelerates the changes that needed to happen and that are more fundamental, then at least some good will have come out of it. I, I, I don't, unfortunately, feel like I can say that it will net out as a good thing because of so much um, devastation that seems to be inevitable. Yeah, thanks. Th- thanks for the kind words, of course. And people, people who I've been talking to, and I, I mean, this has been a nonstop twenty-four hours a day on the phone, couple of weeks. Um, our split seems to me like into two fallacies. Some people have despair and think nothing good can come of this, and then some people are very uh, optimistic, but kind of assume that there will be a silver lining or these good things will happen. This will accelerate the changes. And my view is kind of in between, which is that we can have those opportunities. We can make something positive come out of this, but it requires all of us to step up and lead to get those outcomes. They're by no means automatic. If you study history, lots of crises you know, can wind up strengthening liberal democracies, but they can also destroy them. And I wonder where you net out on this idea that we all have a role to play in uh, trying to get to those positive outcomes rather than the more dire ones. Well, that's why we wear sweatshirts that say it's up to us um, and have stickers. And I think, you know, you know, my 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 husband wrote a book called What's the Future? And I'm he's happy to tell people that the subtitle is what I is, was my edition. And it's what's the future and why it's up to us. I very strongly 
agree that nothing is inevitable uh, and what we all do matters. So, all right, some people who are listening to this are, as we speak right this minute, on their couch, uh, making the mistake of going on social media and watching this human and economic catastrophe play out in real time and sinking into despair. I think that's a very normal human thing to do. And if you're having that experience right now, my heart goes out to you. Don't beat yourself up. It's This is very natural. But let's say that they want to take inspiration from your example and they want to get involved. How can they get off the couch and get in the fight? One of our volunteers actually said, you know, during scary times, I process my emotions by feeling useful any way I can. And I, I love that. I think that sentiment is great. And I think it's really been the driving force for a lot of the work that we're doing. Um, I was also one of those people who was reading every tweet and watching every press conference and feeling kind of like, what was happening? What could I do? So I think my advice is find some way to help. I think, and, and I'll, I'll split that up. I think I also believe in self-care. So if right now is the time for you to take care of yourself and go on long walks and, and really try to make sure you're focusing on your own, on your own health, please do that. But if you are looking for ways to, to kind of externalize and help other groups, um, I think there's obviously us, U.S. Digital Response, of course, but I also think there's lots of local volunteering opportunities. There are people in communities who are trying to deliver food to needy residents. I have another friend who slipped a piece of paper underneath the door of every neighbor because he knows that there are senior citizens who live in his neighborhood that may not know where to find help and may not know to sign up online for help. So I think you can certainly channel some of your efforts that way. And and I also think just being informed and kind of learning about what's happening in the world is also valuable. Um, so it's not always bad to read the news. And I think this something that's that's really just unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime around this, is what a global phenomenon it is. And I think the world in many ways feels a lot smaller than um, I think it ever has. So I think it's also an opportunity to just like learn about what's happening in the world. And we're already helping each other. I mean, um, I know many people have, who've done what Raylene described with their neighbors, including my daughter, who I'm really proud of. But you know, we're helping each other just by locking down. I mean, we are starting to flatten this curve and that's one way we take care of each other. It's a strange, strange circumstance where staying home, not going out, depriving yourself of you know certain pleasures like that's that's actually probably the most important thing and boy if there's anyone listening to this who still has not got the memo on why social distancing is important uh, we'll put some links in the show description please if you do nothing else uh, obey social distancing and and advocate for the company you work in the leaders that you're in connection to your political leaders uh, to make sure we get behind that we still have mayors and governors in this country who, to our great shame, have not yet uh, ordered even a shelter in place, let alone the even more draconian measures that are now going to be required in some of those states because of their failure to act. It's interesting that you talked about this being part of your own way of coping with the crisis, because one of the things that has surprised me greatly in the past few weeks, you know, we need a new, more politically correct term for Tom Sawyering, uh, like this phenomenon of calling people up and telling them, yes, you're ready, you can do this, go, go get them. A number of the people that I have called and asked to get involved in you know, a whole bunch of different relief efforts, um, especially some who I've been making pretty dramatic asks, including like drop everything and please work on this full time. You know, nurses need you, teachers need you, the people are in need right now. Several of those people have been like, thank God you called. I'm I'm so grateful because I was sitting on my couch. I I was I was super stressed. And now that I have something to work on, I actually feel better. And that was a big surprise to me. I, I've been in other kind of crisis relief situations, but I think this has a kind of existential dread attached to it 
that's different than anything that's happened, certainly in our lifetimes or, or certainly in my experience. It feels a lot more like the things, the stories my grandparents used to tell me about uh, the times that they went through. Talk a little bit about some of the people who have inspired you or just, or, you know, the acts of, of leadership and uh, getting into it, how, that, how that's affected your experience of the crisis. I just wanted to tell a, a quick story about sort of exactly the same thing. Um, we onboarded a guy named Mike Flowers. He was Bloomberg's chief analytics officer for a while and had done a bunch of tech and data stuff and thought, oh God, he can help. And it was like a Friday at five o'clock or something. And I get this Slack message from him. Uh, I got onboarded at two. It's five o'clock. It's eight o'clock East Coast time for him. I got onboarded at two and I have not had a moment of rest since eight o'clock. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Mike. And he said, are you kidding me? This is the best thing that's happened to me. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't had a chance to breathe and, and I love it because I'm, I'm you know, because I'm helping. Yeah, please, please name some names. It's great. It's great to both to both to praise people, but then also that sets us up for you know future interviews and gets people curious to learn more about their projects. And please, if there are specific USDR spinoff projects or volunteer opportunities that are live right now, like please do name drop them. Well, I'll do one more. Then Raylene mentioned the the uh, Neighbor Express, which is the platform for helping connect volunteers with people in need in a particular community. And I mentioned that this this came from a LinkedIn message from the mayor of Concord. But when I got that, uh, there's a woman who I, was a former Code for America fellow named Jessica Cole, who also happened to just be in the tech policy hub a fellowship with Raylene. I actually didn't even remember that. But it's this kind of thing where you say, hey, this this need came in. Could you take care of it? And I mean, her answer was about as short as yes. You know, that there's just, there's no questions. There's no, am I getting paid or, you know, what does it look like? What are you expecting of me? How will this live on? I mean, it's just, yes. And to my mind, she kind of disappeared for a couple of days. And the next thing I know, Neighbor Express is up and running. And, 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 and her thing then is, okay, great. We're going to get this to a bunch of other municipalities that need it. But in the meantime, can you give me more? <laughs> I don't remember what all, all the other things are that she's working on now. Um, I think PP Coalition is one of them. I was just going to say she was uh, she jumped right into the breach at a time when I was incapacitated working on PP Coalition and just rolled up her sleeves and took on whatever was needed. It's been, uh, it's been very inspiring to see. Yeah, I can give a couple of shout outs. I think, you know, First, like huge gratitude to everyone on the core team. I think we that for the first couple of weeks we were working all essentially every waking hour. And Alex and Elaine, who came recently at Dropbox, joined kind of no questions asked. We've only met in person maybe a few times, uh, and I talk to him every day now. But a couple other things. Um, I think the team at COVID Act now, so like Max Henderson, Igor Kaufman, uh, many others. I, I think we've been joking around, like especially with Max, that. It's like making friends in the in the nineties where you make online friends, you know, you mm -hmm. never meet them, just chat with them. I think Eric, you and I are kind of like this as well, where we've texted and called and we've never met. So um I think that's happening all over kind of the internet right now. I think recently Ben Silverman and Jack Cho with you know, people from their network has launched how we feel. So I see a lot of these kind of sibling efforts all over happening. Um and I think it's wonderful. And I think we're kind of building this community of people uh, all on text messages and WhatsApp threads. But I think it's a real community. And I think everyone's really pouring a lot of energy into this. God willing, we get through this crisis. We'll all be lifelong friends and we'll get to meet in real life one day.
I hope so. I hope so too. We've, we've got a bunch of people who've worked on this sort of data automation for hospitals in Pennsylvania, who I, I think must have just worked all night on it one day, because it's quite a beautiful piece of, of software that it really helps Pennsylvania, um, you know, ingest and see a lot of data that it needed to have in one place. And, you know, the professionalism of it is astounding. But when you realize how quickly they turned it around, I can't imagine that they slept. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like just a couple of shots, like Erica Reinhardt, who's on the core team, but has also just mobilized and worked with multiple other projects and Tiffany Ho, who, who was leading that effort on the on the dashboard that Jen's mentioning for Pennsylvania. It's astonishing what people can get done in two days during a crisis that they would have sworn would have taken two years uh, beforehand. Yep. Yeah, we had a team put together um, an MVP for a pandemic unemployment assistance application form. Um, and I, yeah, they, they got it done pretty much overnight and it looks fantastic and it's very impressive. And that's uh, Erica Reinhardt and Tyler Claycamp and Dylan, and I'm forgetting Dylan's last name, but a whole bunch of other people. And yeah, like they don't even know each other, but they work like the, I, as far as I can tell, they work like a team that has their cadence down from just years of shipping great product together. So who do you think are the real heroes of this crisis? Well, we, we get to work with a bunch of heroes in public ser- in all kinds of public service. And I do say a lot of them, unfortunately, are still going to the office and exposing themselves oh, God. because governments haven't prepared properly to have everyone work at home. But we, we do have to acknowledge that the folks that are staffing hospitals, doctors, nurses, and others that need to be in there are putting their lives at risk. And, and I, I can't thank them enough. I know many of our volunteers and even our core team members are doing this because they want to help those in, they they have family members or loved ones who are on the front lines in hospitals and our hearts go out to them. What do you think will be the long-term impact of the crisis? In in my world, I mean, I've, I've spent the last 10 years trying to figure out how to make government better and make it work for people and responsive to people's needs and treat people with dignity and respect, uh, and of course, spend government money well. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of good long-term impacts and some bad ones. And I think we can avert some of the bad ones by getting in there quickly and showing that there's a better way to do this. You know, reminding folks that yeah, if we can do it this way in a pandemic, we should be able to do it this way all the time. I think we can change government to work better for people through this. My friends at helpwithcovid.com recently reached out to me with one of my favorite questions, which was, um, what are some projects that should exist but don't so that we can suggest volunteers go work on them? Uh, Do you each want to suggest something that you wish existed but didn't? So I think there's been a lot of no-code, low-code tools that have come up continuously, but I'm really excited about them. I think Mm -hmm. there's so many out there. And we were on a call with someone who was like, hey, right now we we know that to us, Google Docs is like, the coolest thing since sliced bread. And we know there's much better bread out there, but we just don't know where it is and how to use it yet. And I think there's something there where I feel like right now, the low code, no code tools are amazing, but you still have to kind of know what they are and like kind of know how to configure them and use them. Yeah. So I still think there's some gap there between Google Docs and like Retool and Airtable and all the tools that a lot of us are using. So I give a shout out to my friends at Bubble. <laughs> there you go, Bubble, of course, that, yeah. yeah. And I think- you know, I think there's some gap that can be closed there, especially for very simple apps that a lot of people we see are trying to, a lot of it's around communication of consistent events, schedules, like 
communication. Um, and I just think maybe there's something in the middle there that helps bridge the gap still. Yeah. You know, what else there should be is more, I mean, I'm sure this is there, but we should, uh, highlight it more is just training for public servants and people like me even on things like Airtable. Just there's a, there's a new set of tools that you don't have to be technical to use and make management of data easier. And we should just get people trained up. There's dozens of these pop-up organizations now working on relief efforts. And if we made that training available to all of them, we could accelerate, I don't know how many thousands of people's work overnight. That's a great idea. Mm -hmm. So where do you think we go from here? How do we get out of the crisis? Well, um, I, I don't think I have anything particularly insightful to say other than we have to flatten that curve, take this seriously, stay inside as long as it takes to reduce um, the deaths. And then we have to rebuild our economy. And I think that second part is unfortunately harder. And by rebuild the economy, I don't just mean that money should start to flow again. Um, I think it means that we have to use what government is meant to do, which is to be a backstop. We've seen it happen. You know, it's the, I don't think, a, you know, the effort that it takes to wage a war is a terrible, you know, metaphor here. Not that we're waging a war, but that we all come together when there's a war, or we have in the past, at least. And, and then, you know, the interventions that were required during the Great Depression, we have to take seriously that we have an institution called government four times like this, and that that institution of government is meant to keep people from starving and falling into you know, unimaginable poverty. We haven't been doing a good job of it leading up to this, as you said, and we do bear shame for that. And I think that's appropriate. Um, but that's the work. And, and I, I think I hope a lot of people rediscover an appreciation for government. And it is going to be needed now more than ever. This has been Out of the Crisis. Out of the Crisis is hosted by me, Eric Reese, produced by LTSE's Ben Ehrlich, and edited by Breakers Jacob Tender. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Out of the Crisis was created in partnership with Breaker, the best platform to create and listen to podcasts. For more information on ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. I have several projects on there, and feel free to message me that way. I'm also Eric Reese on Twitter, and if anyone has ideas or is working on a project related to solutions, please do reach out to me. Thanks for listening.